You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. A Chinese cyber espionage campaign is believed to be active in the Middle East. Poor quality control turns ransomware into a wiper and a typo crashes a cryptojacker. A large DDoS attack is reported to have hit a Russian state-owned bank. Privateers compromise Western infrastructure to stage cyber attacks. Cyber operations against national morale. A look at the Vice Society. Ben Yellen on the growing concerns over TikTok. Ann Johnson from Afternoon Cyber Tea speaks with Charles Blauner about the evolution of the CISO role, and CISA has added an entry to its known exploited vulnerabilities catalog. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, December 6th, 2022. Bitdefender has published a report describing a Chinese cyber espionage operation targeting telecom providers in the Middle East. The threat actor gained initial access by exploiting the proxy shell vulnerability in Microsoft Exchange Server. After gaining access, the threat actor deployed multiple tools to establish persistence, move laterally, and escalate privileges. These included the IRAFAO and Quarian backdoors and the Pinkman agent. Bitdefender suspects backdoor diplomacy, a China-linked APT discovered last year by researchers at ESET. ESET noted that the group primarily targets ministries of foreign affairs in the Middle East and Africa, and less frequently telecommunication companies. Bitdefender attributes the campaign to backdoor diplomacy based on the domains used for command and control. Yesterday, we discussed recent developments in ransomware, highlighting the increased professionalization of ransomware gangs. However, not all threat actors are moving toward business-like functions and may be disorganized. Poor quality control causes the hoods as many problems as it would a legitimate business. A sample of open-source ransomware toolkit Kryptonite has been found to act as a wiper, Fortinet reports. Researchers say that the sample never offers the decryption window, causing it to act as a wiper, and say that they believe this was unintentional. In their report, Fortinet writes, The ransomware was not intentionally turned into a wiper. Instead, the lack of quality assurance led to a sample that did not work correctly. The problem with this flaw is that due to the design simplicity of the ransomware, if the program crashes or is even closed, there is no way to recover the encrypted files. 
this sample demonstrates how a ransomware's weak architecture and programming can quickly turn it into a wiper that does not allow data recovery. Although we often complain about the increasing sophistication of ransomware samples, we can also see that oversimplicity and a lack of quality assurance can also lead to significant problems. On the positive side, however, this simplicity combined with a lack of self-protection features allows every antivirus program to easily spot this malware. And it's not just ransomware that's got its QA problems either. Crypto jackers need some attention, too. The crypto mining botnet KMSDBot, which could also be used for DDoS attacks, has been described by Ars Technica as a complex malware with no easy fix. Akamai researchers, however, witnessed the controller of the botnet accidentally send a malformed command. The botmasters neglected to put a space between an IP address and a port in a command, and it caused a panic crash and an error that read index out of range. As Ars Technica says, because there's no persistence, the bot stays down, and malicious agents would need to reinfect a machine and rebuild the bot's functions. Akamai Principal Security Intelligence Response Engineer Larry Cashdollar says that almost all of the KMSD bot activity being tracked by the company has stopped. Akamai describes the situation as a strong example of the fickle nature of technology. So stay in school, kids. Even if you're an aspiring criminal, spelling and punctuation still count. Make your English teacher proud. Reuters reports that state-owned VTB, Russia's second-largest bank, has sustained a major DDoS attack. VTB said in a statement quoted by Reuters, The bank's technological infrastructure is under an unprecedented cyber attack from abroad, the largest not only this year but in the whole time the bank has operated. While VTB said the attack originated outside of Russia, it also said it was disturbed by the amount of attack traffic originating from Russian IP addresses and that it was cooperating fully with official investigation. Computing reports that VTB said customer funds and data were safe. Reuters includes an interesting disclaimer above its story, stating, This content was produced in Russia where the law restricts coverage of Russian military operations in Ukraine. That doesn't suggest falsehood, but perhaps some want of useful context. In any case, VTB says it's got the matter under control, which is in all likelihood true. Scottish deception-as-a-service security firm Lupovis ran an exercise to see whether its honey traps would attract Russian cyber operators. They did. The researchers found that the most concerning finding from our study is that Russian cyber criminals have compromised the networks of multiple global organizations, including a Fortune 500 business, over 15 healthcare organizations, and a dam monitoring system. These organizations were based in the UK, France, the US, Brazil, and South Africa, and Russian criminals are rerouting through their networks to launch cyber attacks on Ukrainian targets which effectively means that they're using these organizations to carry out their dirty work. A surprising fraction of the attacks targeted healthcare organizations. The findings reemphasize the important role cybercriminals continue to play in Russia's war effort. Whether they're functioning as patriotic hacktivists or privateers, the underworld is clearly the Kremlin's principal cyber auxiliary. Alexander Patai 
deputy chairman of Ukraine's State Service of Special Communications and Information Protection of Ukraine, characterized Russian hybrid operations and their cyber components especially as representing an assault on Ukrainian morale. Politico quotes him as saying, Classic cyber attacks, phishing, DDoS threats, ransomware on critical infrastructure, these cyber attacks continue, but we have a new method of cyber attack to influence political processes, social processes, civil society and political society, to destabilize the social-political situation in different countries, cities, and regions. So the cyber attacks are serving the same end as the missiles— they are not there to affect the enemy's military capabilities directly, but rather to establish mindshare in civil society. The Vice Society, Palo Alto Network's Unit 42 finds, is interested in education, but not in a good way. Unlike some of their competitors in the ransomware game, the Vice Society doesn't write much code from scratch, nor does it play in the typical ransomware-as-a-service market. Instead, they seem to prefer to use forks of pre-existing ransomware strains. Unit 42 explains, Unlike many other ransomware groups, such as Lockbit, that follow a typical ransomware-as-a-service model, Vice Society's operations are different, in that they've been known for using forks of pre-existing ransomware families in their attack chain that are sold on dark web marketplaces. These include the Hello Kitty and Zeppelin strains of ransomware, as opposed to Vice Society developing their own custom payload. The gang goes after K-12 schools in particular because, first, they're often vulnerable, less well-protected than bigger operations, and second, because they hold a great deal of valuable personal data. The Unit 42 report concludes, Vice Society and its consistent targeting of the education industry vertical, particularly around the September time frame, serves as a warning that this group has shaped their campaigns to take advantage of the school year in the U.S. It's likely they'll maintain use of these tactics to impact the cyber threat landscape moving forward as long as their activities continue to be lucrative for them. And finally, CISA yesterday added CVE 2022-4262 to its known exploited vulnerabilities catalog, the issue is a type confusion vulnerability in Google Chromium version 8. Agencies are expected to apply updates per vendor instructions no later than December 26th. And so, federal executive civilian agencies, look to your patching. Coming up after the break, Ben Yellen on the growing concerns over TikTok... Ann Johnson from Afternoon Cyber Tea speaks with Charles Blauner about the evolution of the CISO role. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. 
In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Ann Johnson from Microsoft is host of the Afternoon Cyber Tea podcast. And on a recent episode, she speaks with Charles Blauner about the evolution of the CISO role. So I know you were in the industry when the CISO role first came to be. Can you share with us some of the history and the evolution of the role from your perspective? Sure. So in a lot of ways, Steve Katz, who's a good friend of both of ours, became the first CISO in uh, 1995. Citibank back then had an event in 1994. Young Russian broke in, stole a bunch of money. And there was this realization that this is a business issue. And so I had actually been working for Steve. He uh, was my boss at J.P. Morgan. He left to go to Citi and become the first CISO in 1995. And I joined him together with others like Rhonda McLean, Bank of America, and I was at J.P. Morgan shortly thereafter. But back then, it was not a business function. Back then, the idea of the CISO's job was basically keep off the front page of the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, stay out of trouble with the regulator. And you had a very sort of narrow focus that was really about protecting the data, especially in banking because of things like the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, which was one of the first times the word customer privacy came up in U.S. law. So you had this very narrow function. It was basically a keep out of trouble. And if you were lucky in banks once a year, you met with the board for about five minutes. It was the law, and that was good. And if you were lucky, you might get a really tough question about one of the uh, board members' personal credit cards. But the world changed, and over time, we started to really think about uh, this as a risk management discipline. What were some of the key paradigm shifts you saw? And in addition to what you've talked about, what were some of the surprises along the way, those aha moments that you said, wow, we could have or should have been thinking about this, or wow, I'm surprised this is in my remit? I mean, one is, I think there's been a radical shift in the nature of the threat, right? Where you went from when the early days... It was a bunch of young kids who were getting whistles out of Cracker Jack bottles to hack the telephone system for free dial tone to sophisticated criminal organizations 
to nation state actors, and now to the point where you've got actual criminal organizations that are as good, if not better, than a lot of nation state actors. And so you have one piece of pretty radical change, and then you sort of layer on the the various technology changes. Then you think about the next radical change, distributed computing, and now cloud uh, or public cloud is the next thing. And each of those things have driven radical changes in the underlying security technology. What advice do you have to CISOs who need to make that transition from being viewed as a blocker to really being viewed as an enabling business partner? So the most important thing, I think, for CISOs is to really understand the core of how your company makes money. That will drive everything. How a bank makes money, one thing actually how a bank makes money is lots of different things. How a pharmaceutical company makes money, how a consumer packaged good company makes money. You really need to understand how your company makes money. Right? And you need to understand the key sort of business processes that support that. The other thing is with the sort of digital transformation that's underway to a greater or lesser degree, depending on what industries you're in, that digital transformation creates an opportunity and risk sort of pair about how do you do the business in this new digital world? And how do you take the maybe non-technical business controls that may have existed, and, and how do you make those things happen in as frictionless a way as possible? That's Ann Johnson from Afternoon Cyber Tea speaking with Charles Blauner. You can hear the entire interview on the Afternoon Cyber Tea podcast. That's right here on the CyberWire Podcast Network. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Uh, interesting article came over. This is written by Brooke Singman over on the Fox Business website. It's titled, TikTok Poses Legitimate National Security Concerns, according to Treasury Secretary Yellen. Uh, first of all, Ben, uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, uh, relative of yours? Yeah, she's my great aunt. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's it's spelled differently. She spells okay. it the incorrect way of Y E L L E N. I'm uh, Y E L I N. I see. So, uh, but certainly hasn't stopped me from uh, making many jokes about it. <laughs> so let's dig into this story here. Uh, this is about uh, TikTok, uh, the potential national security concerns. This is something that's been talked about for a while here. What, what do we make of Secretary Yellen uh, addressing this specifically? So we've heard about this going back several years to the Trump administration where there are legitimate threats to shut down TikTok in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, TikTok is owned by ByteDance. That is a Chinese company based in Beijing. Uh, and because it's based in China, 
a lot of U.S. officials have warned that the Chinese Communist Party could compel that company um, with the full force of the law to turn over American users' data. Uh, the consequences of using our data is it could expose us to propaganda. It could learn thing about our learn things about our own citizens that we don't know about ourselves. Um, it could control software on millions of devices, which could uh, technically compromise those devices. So that certainly presents a lot of risk. Uh, TikTok is what the young people use these days. It's very <laughs> ubiquitous. That's what I hear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And what's so—I I, I wouldn't say funny because this is very serious. We're talking about national security implications. But, like, most of TikTok is people making silly videos. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm on it just more for observational purposes. And it's mostly at least the content that gets filtered uh, to me based on my personal characteristics are uh, married couples with kids uh, sharing their foibles about raising toddlers. Right. <laughs> It's just interesting that that's turning into a major national security threat. But I think what we've heard from Secretary Yellen and from FBI Director uh, Christopher Wray is without knowing how much this parent company is going to share with the Chinese government, I don't think we're properly able to assess our risk. Um, This is a powerful tool. It is embedded with very advanced uh, artificial intelligence Um, In the words of former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, it is an element of the Chinese security apparatus. Hmm. Uh, And so it certainly is is something that could jeopardize national security, Uh, especially for our maybe our second uh, biggest geopolitical foe at the moment, but certainly probably our biggest geopolitical foe in the long term. Um, So kids out there, if you are TikTok users uh, and um, this is how you communicate with your friends, at least be aware that there's a possibility that this is going to be curtailed in the United States um, if a case can be made uh, in front of the proper government bodies that this is presents an undue risk to national security. And this is unprecedented, right? I mean, we haven't seen a major social media platform taken down or, or I guess banned is a better way to say it because it would be access in the U.S. that would be restricted, right? right? Uh, we have not seen this on, on a large scale. So smaller apps have been banned uh, by this committee in the Treasury Department. So the Treasury Department has this committee on, uh, committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. Mm. They evaluate national security risks associated with foreign-owned companies and their uh, decisions carry the force of law. So they really do have the authority to shut this down. It would be a radical action. It would get a lot of blowback. Um, so I, I think you have to treat it very delicately. Even if you acknowledge that it's a national security risk, is it worth shutting this down if it could lead to retaliation? Or if people would try to use uh, less secure TikTok alternatives or through piracy get TikToks on their device and it, you wouldn't be able to regulate it, it would be even less secure than it is now. Um, so it's certainly not ma- – making a decision to ban it certainly would not be without risk. Um, but I think it's remarkable that we've seen the government consider something like this when this is one of the top not, – I'm not selling, but one of the top free applications on um, Google and uh, iOS. So – and TikTok is saying that they've got this under control. They're claiming, you know, we're 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 spun off. We're independent from you know, our Chinese uh, mothership, if you were, you know, <laughs> the the parent company. 
so nothing to see here. No, no, your concerns are overstated. Yeah, I mean, I so I don't think we should take that at face value because the Chinese government is extremely powerful. I mean, they've been able to enforce a basically a lockdown of billions of people at a time in some major cities because of their uh, surveillance capabilities and uh, their large law enforcement presence. Mm-hmm. Um, whether you agree with the morality of that or not, and I suspect most people do not, um, especially those who listen to our show, that shows their level of, of power and capability. Uh, so if you get on the wrong side of the Chinese Communist Party, um, that's not going to be good for your company. Mm. So I think that gives companies the incentive to comply with potential requests. And that's one of the natures of uh, Secretary Yellen's uh, concern here. Is Can we imagine an outcome, uh, some sort of middle ground here? Is this an all or nothing, do you suppose? I don't think it's an all or nothing. Uh, I think an outright ban is within the realm of possibility, but unlikely. Mm. Um, I think there could be some type of workaround that they could figure out where uh, there's enforcement power through the Department of Justice that prevents this company from handing data over to the Chinese Communist Party with the threat that if you do, uh, we're going to ban this app in the United States. That could be a potential starting ground for negotiations. Um, Or there's probably creative people out there who could think of better solutions that don't lead to banning uh, the application. But it's certainly a risk that's out there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> yet another one to follow. Uh, and I, I, you and I will follow it. But more importantly, my che- my teenage son will be following it with great interest. <laughs> yeah. I mean, think about all the time all the teenagers are going to have in this country when TikTok is eliminated. What are they going to do? Right. Right. Have to go back to Facebook where all their grandparents are <laughs> posting political memes. Yeah. That's, that ain't going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The CyberWire podcast is a production of N2K Networks, proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Rupa Prakash, Liz Irvin, Rachel Gelfand, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Maria Vermatsis, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Millie Lardy, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Catherine Murphy, Janine Daly, Jim Hoshite, 
Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, Simone Petrella, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.